0: Hi, I'm Dan Pramack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today's Wednesday, July 1st. Pfizer stock is up on promising vaccine data. July 4th, travel is expected to be way down. And we're wondering if the deficit even matters anymore. How are you going to pay for it? That's one of the most popular questions in presidential politics. Medicare for all? How are you going to pay for it? Student debt cancellation? How are you going to pay for it? fixing roads and bridges, how are you gonna pay for it? Even President Trump's most famous 2016 pledge to build a southern border wall came with an explicit explanation of who'd pay for it, even if it never made much sense. But what if you didn't have to pay for it, any of it, ever? That's the basic premise behind something called modern monetary theory. If Congress wants to spend money on something, it should just do it without worrying about raising revenue or cutting spending on the other side. Need to spend more money? print more money. Now, that does sound a bit radical, but one of the leading MMT advocates has become very influential in Democratic Party politics. Her name is Stephanie Kelton, and she was an economic advisor to Bernie Sanders before recently moving over to a task force for the Biden campaign. Now, Vice President Biden has not fully subscribed to MMT, and nor did Sanders for that matter. But Kelton's involvement with Biden's campaign could give us a window into how he would govern America's economy were he to beat President Trump in November. In 15 seconds, we will talk to Stephanie Kelton about her role in the Biden campaign and her belief that the bill doesn't always come due. But first, this we're joined now by Stephanie Kelton, who has a new book out titled The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. That is not the sort of title that would usually find its way onto the New York Times bestseller list. but it did. Why do you think people are so interested in this right now?
1: I think that having the government spend a lot of money at the moment might otherwise cause people a lot of anxiety. All of a sudden, you know, we went through 2019, let's say, watching a very crowded field of Democratic presidential hopefuls talk about proposals to do things like cancel student loan debt or provide health care to everyone. And we listened for the better part of a year to conversations that were all wrapped up around, how are we going to come up with the money? How are we going to pay for this? How can that happen? And all of a sudden, you know, fast forward to March or so of this year, and Congress is spinning out trillion dollar spending bills. And I think people are curious and confused about why it is suddenly that we're able to come up with all of this money to deal with the coronavirus pandemic and the economic fallout when we were just having this very different conversation only a matter of months ago.
0: Let me ask about the conversation, just presidential politics a little bit. You had been advising Senator Sanders. You're now advising the Biden campaign. Can you just characterize your role vis-a-vis the Biden campaign, what you are and or aren't doing with them?
1: Yeah, I'm not advising the campaign. I was appointed to one of the six task forces. So I have been serving in that capacity for a number of weeks or months, I guess now, as a member, one of eight members on the unity task force on the economy.
0: What's the practical difference between that and advising the campaign?
1: Well, I don't know, but uh, I'm not going to give myself an official title that I have not been asked to hold.
0: Fair enough. Vice President Biden does not seem to be a supporter or an adherent to MMT. When you look at a lot of his economic proposals, is that a fair read of the situation? And do you feel that he is getting closer to your position as opposed to staying firm where he was?
1: What I've heard him talk about is I've heard him say things like, this is not a garden variety downturn. This is very serious. This is worse than what we went through in 2008, 2009. So he understands the magnitude of the crisis that we are in, and he has committed to acting in ways that are commensurate with the challenges we face. So he uses language like bold, big, ambitious. He said, I think at one point, Rooseveltian. So these are his words. And... And that, to me, suggests that Roosevelt, for example, was not bashful when it came to tackling employment and the crisis. And he wasn't concerned about the deficit, per se. He was concerned about an economic recovery. And so when he talks in those ways, I think it sounds much closer to the way that I tend to think.
0: Let's talk a little bit about MMT. Is it fair to characterize it as essentially arguing that federal budget deficits just simply do not matter?
1: Well, it depends on the time and place. Always matters. So I always say every deficit is good for someone. That is just the result of the accounting. A government deficit, I don't know if everybody really understands this, but when the government engages in deficit spending or runs a fiscal deficit, it means they're spending more dollars into the economy than they are subtracting away from us by taxing. So every deficit is good for someone in the sense that somebody gets those extra dollars. Questions are, Who gets them? Where are they going and for what purpose? And are those dollars creating dislocations and problems in the economy? The big one being inflation. So deficits can get too big. They can matter in the sense that they give rise to economic problems like inflation. But in the current environment, the risk isn't that the deficit is too large. The risk today is that the deficits are, first of all, not large enough yet. And second, that they might be withdrawn prematurely and leave the economy
0: really to recover. If you look at the last 30 years of presidential administrations, the deficit has either gone away entirely or been narrowed by Democratic administrations. It's been blown up by Republican administrations going back administration after administration. So I'm curious, you advise Democrats, you're a member of the Democratic Party. Are you in the wrong party? Because it would seem that it's Republican presidents who, despite the rhetoric, are the ones who like to do deficit spending more than Democratic presidents.
1: Nah, come on. So remember that I said every deficit is good for someone. The questions are for whom and for what purpose are these deficits being sustained? So I think in my lifetime, I'm older than I look, I think I can safely say in my lifetime, I think the federal government's budget has been in surplus five years. Barring that, deficits are absolutely the norm. We have them in Democratic administrations. We have them under Republican administrations. The question is, how do Republicans like to use the deficit? Well, oh, you don't have to look back very far. Go to December of 2017. The last time there was a discretionary move, which was the tax cuts, the so-called Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that added an estimated almost $2 trillion to deficits Absolutely. over the next yep. 10 years. And look, they understand that the deficit is good for someone, but they delivered that windfall to the people who least need the help in this economy. So I'm in the right party because I want to orient those deficits in a different way. I don't want to wipe them out and get rid of them. I want to change the way that we're using them so that the benefits go overwhelmingly to the people who are struggling and most need the help in this
0: economy. If Joe Biden won the presidency, would you want to roll in the administration and or chair of the Fed? Look,
1: I had a little bit of time in Washington, D.C. It would be nice being in the majority. We were not in the majority when I was there. And so a lot of what you experience is quite frustrating. I'm an economist and I love public policy. I would be very happy to consider playing a role if I could bring something useful to the table.
0: When you think of the role of the Fed or of the Treasury Secretary in this moment, right, in this kind of coronavirus moment, do you feel those roles should change at all in terms of kind of what they do and how they operate?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they are changing and not just here in the U.S., but around the world. I think what we have seen is greater coordination. And I think that's to our benefit, our benefit being the whole of the economy. What happened after 2008, I think, was extremely unfortunate. We had Fed Chair Bernanke essentially going before Congress periodically in testimony and in his very subtle way, asking Congress to step it up we've got one policy lever, we have monetary policy, but you have a powerful lever, you have fiscal policy, and we could use a little help. And he would say it in this very carefully coded language. And Congress either didn't get the message or just refused to act. And so we got the one stimulus, but we didn't get more when we needed it. And this time, there is more coordination between the two. And I think that's definitely been a good thing.
0: Final question for you. When you look at the last two economic crises we've had, 2008, 2009, and this one, which one scares you more? 100%
1: this one, because this one has the potential to morph into a financial crisis. And then we get the worst kinds of things we had before on top of the health pandemic, the economic crisis, and the rest of it. So I'd say definitely this one.
0: Stephanie Kelton, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: What we're watching today is Mark Zuckerberg, who's agreed to meet with organizers of a Facebook ad boycott that's now expanded to over 400 brands, including Target, Volkswagen, and Dunkin' Donuts, all within the last 48 hours. This is the same ad boycott we first discussed on Monday's podcast, when an executive from Ben & Jerry's told us that the first thing he wants Facebook to do is sit down with organizers. And now it seems like that could happen. And given that Zuckerberg recently reversed course on, as he once put it, being the, quote, arbiter of truth, this could become the beginning of Facebook taking hate speech more seriously, if not for moral reasons. Then at least for financial ones. Today, we're also watching jobs. As ADP this morning said that the private sector added 2.4 million jobs in June. Now, that's down from the 3.1 million jobs ADP now says were gained in May and comes ahead of tomorrow's highly watched Labor Department report on June jobs. But honestly, don't pay too much attention either to ADP or to the Labor Department, at least not yet. All of this data was collected before big states like Texas began either pausing or rolling back economic reopening plans. Plus, there's still that expanded unemployment benefit package that runs through the end of July. So if you want a more meaningful number, wait a few months, maybe until September, which is when we'll get the August numbers after those unemployment benefits have expired. And finally, today, we take a moment to remember Google Reader which Google murdered on this day in 2013. In the subsequent seven years, one thing has remained true. Lots and lots of us really want it back. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great National Postal Workers Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.